Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. How to introduce Betty Yu? Let me count the ways. Multimedia artist, filmmaker, photographer, activist, educator. Betty combines film, new media platforms, and community-infused approaches in her work. Born and raised in New York City to Chinese immigrant parents, she's also a co-founder of Chinatown Art Brigade, a cultural collective which uses art to advance anti-gentrification organizing in the New York neighborhood. She has over 20 years of community, media justice, and labor organizing work. Betty's been the recipient of numerous artist residences and fellowships. Her work has been shown extensively, including the Brooklyn Museum, Queens Museum, Margaret Mead Film and Video Festival, Tribeca Film Festival's Interactive Showcase. In 2017, she was the recipient of the Aronson Journalism for Social Justice Award for her film, Three Tours, which profiled U.S. veterans returning home from the Iraq War and their journey to overcome PTSD. Betty teaches video, social practice, art, and activism at Pratt Institute, John Jay College, and the New School, all in Manhattan, the New York Times, HBO Vice, News Tonight, Art Forum, and Art News are just some of the outlets that have highlighted and featured her work. Betty has a BFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and a master's in integrated media arts from Hunter College. So let's meet and get to know this passionate, committed activist artist, Betty, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you so much, Sandy, for the invitation. It's great to be here. I just want to start off by saying we have one thing in common for sure. I have no artistic ability, but I did get a BFA also from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, and I might add probably many years before you did. <laughs> oh, wow. We're in which department? Out film, of curiosity. Film and television. As a oh, oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. And yeah. one of my, uh, one of the students there with me was Billy Crystal. And as I'm name dropping and a TA back in the day was Martin Scorsese. No way. What's weird. I went to school with Billy Crystal's daughter. So she, <laughs> all, Lindsay Crystal also studied film at Tisch. As oh, well. And, and yeah, she, she was in my graduating class. <laughs> well, that just shows you that we have a bit of an age difference between you and I, but that's okay. That's okay. So, Betty, whenever I meet my guests, I love to go back in time. Talk about what it was like growing up and where did your bent for activism and art come from? Yeah, I always get asked this question. I'm always like, I always kind of think back because it's it's interesting because I always like to say that the way that I found art and culture and media um, as tools for expression and for a platform to tell people's stories, you know, marginalized people, people of color, folks who have been in the front lines fighting for justice. But I say that I found these tools really through activism and not the other way around, which most people say, oh, well, you you probably picked up these tools and then you, these issues are issues that you just care about. And then you just, you know, use your tools to, these tools to, to highlight them. Um, but I kind of just came right into, you know, a lot of people sort of find the issue that they're passionate about and they get involved in it. And for me, there was no choice in the matter. I sort of was born in a situation where I had to, I was already in the social justice world, uh, whether I knew it or not. And so I grew up in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, 
born and raised, and um, my parents are garment workers. They were working at a time in the 70s and 80s when the garment union and the garment industry was thriving, and they were making a decent living. They had to work really long hours, work really hard to put food on the table. And my grandmother also was also working. But then, you know, there was this sort of decline of the garment industry. And in the 90s, the conditions really deteriorated, um, as did the community in general and the working conditions and people like my parents who are working longer and longer hours. So all that to say that you can no longer tell the difference of labor conditions. You know, I come from labor activism and immigrant rights work. So it's painful to say that there really wasn't a difference between the union and the non-union conditions and Hmm. wages at that time. And so I would just witness my mom working, you know, 14 hours a day coming home. And we live in a very patriarchal society, of course, but even within the Chinese culture, so, and my dad was working very long hours too, but it was expected that the mother, you know, cooks the meals and all this kind right, of thing. Right, her work and continued once her work ended. Her work, ex- exactly, to the double exploitation. And as early as 13, 14, I had to cook meals for my family because everyone was working. I had older sisters, but they were already either in, in college already or working. And so they were like 10 years older than me, a sister that was five years older. So anyway, I uh, witnessed this very firsthand. And I just remember feeling really robbed of time with my parents because they couldn't take me to a PTA meeting and they couldn't take me to whatever weekend thing that folks would do with their parents. Um, I just, I felt really robbed of that. My sisters helped raising me. My, my grandmother eventually had to quit her garment job and just take care of us full time because that was just what made sense. And um, through this all, I started to see that this was not just my parents, but it was systemic and it was a structural problem with not only within the garment industry, but the treatment of uh, particularly garment workers, female garment workers who were exploited as well as male. But the women were sort of, there's that double and triple exploitation even within the garment factory. And that was when I was a teenager. So um, in the mid nineties, I My sister invited me um, to a labor strike, and it's now probably one of the most infamous labor uh, strikes and protests um, in at least New York City's history in Chinatown. And it was against Jingfeng Restaurant um, in 1995, and the workers were being paid 75 cents an hour. The tips were being stolen, and they eventually unionized, and now it's the only unionized restaurant that is hanging on by a thread at risk of closure. But anyway, so Jingfeng, um, the workers decided that they wanted to fight really hard against this. And so my sister was one of the five hunger strikers who hunger striked by the restaurant. And I went there as a high school student, just thinking I'll photograph. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was studying photography in high school. And I was like, you know what, do away with the camera. And I, I got really engaged and involved in the organizing. And then my mother also got really involved and was a leader in the work. Uh, really early on, I just became an, an activist and, and a, a spokesperson, not just for myself, but for our community and my mother as well. And so our our two generations of, of activists, I guess, was intriguing to folks. So it was in some labor history books that you see, you know, that struggle and how we got involved. But eventually the workers in the um, restaurant won back at that time, the largest uh, lawsuit for, for restaurant workers. I think it was like 3.5 million at that time in 97 when they won. Mm-hmm. It goes back to that. And it wasn't a choice for me to get involved in activism at all. I just kind of realized that I was in it the whole time and what was happening to my community and to my with my parents. I, from then on, have used this tool, these tools to highlight injustices, um, not just with my parents and not just the Asian community, but really throughout um, New York City, um, you know, conditions that affect um, poor working people, people of color. When did your parents come here? 
They came here in um, 1972. Mm-hmm. Together? They came together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They met in Hong Kong and they came together. And uh, it's a complicated story. You know, I have a great grandfather that actually came to the U.S. probably as a, a contracted laborer working on the railroads, but I'm still trying to figure that piece out in Nevada in the 1860s and 70s. Wow. So because the Chinatowns were burned down, as you probably know the history, a lot of people have been talking about the Exclusion Act and right. all this anti-Chinese racism that's happening, which a lot of my work is very much connected to that now. Anyway, and has been for a long time. So a lot of this stuff is dredging up. Uh, like I talked to my, my father recently, he's like, yeah, you have a great grandfather that can't like, how come I didn't know this? Mm. So there's that piece of it. And then I had a, a grandfather who passed away when I was five, but he came as a paper son. So back in the day, you would have to buy fake papers because he was poor, but he was not poor. I mean, he was, he had enough money to buy papers, right. To come. And as you probably know, the whole idea of borders and documentation, all of this actually got, was created to bar the Chinese from coming, right. The whole, this whole immigration, I mean, back before 1882, there weren't, there wasn't this idea of borders and needing papers and all this. So he had to buy fake papers. They called them paper sons to come. And he did a lot of back and forth. So it's unclear to me, but my grandfather also really couldn't build roots here. So there was a lot of back and forth for him. So I always say that my situation is really unique in that even though there was multiple generations of my family in the United States, um, I still consider myself first generation. But so my parents came in 72, though, uh, from Hong Kong. So you really got them to get involved in activism. <laughs> yeah, my sister really was the sort of the um, the trailblazer, honestly. Um, but then I, I got involved and I actually end up uh, becoming a full-time organizer with the Organ- Chinese Staff and Workers Association, which is the organization that is still around today, one of the first worker centers that uh, started back in late 70s. But yeah, when I got involved, my mom, I think at first, I have to say that the older generation of Chinese, just like now, um, at that time, you know, it's if you stay silent, you just right, keep your head right, down, right. you don't, you know, you don't, you don't argue, you just yeah. go, you just, you just work. And realizing mm-hmm. that what we were telling her is that you know, I mean, we were essentially fighting for better conditions for people like her and my dad and, and, and the larger community. And that people that looked like us were actually exploiting us, meaning the, the contractors who looked like us, um, they were Chinese, were often obviously hired by larger manufacturers and retailers. But it's like you used to keep your people in line. And um, we started to really kind of unpack that. And at that time, there was a huge wave of, of garment workers and restaurant workers really coming together, union or not union, but through the worker center, really fighting against wage theft, I guess you could say now, that we call that wage theft now, but they weren't not getting paid their minimum wage or overtime or anything like that. So she became a real spokesperson. But yeah, I guess you could say it was, I guess through seeing how why, she was what, curious, like, why would my daughters spent their lives like doing this work. We were both really impassioned and she came and checked out a meeting and then realized, you know, she just realized this was, this was something that was about her and her community and that we shouldn't be like my mother and my father should not be treated like, um, in this way, in Mm -hmm. these inhumane conditions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Unfortunately, everything old is new again, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. But I want to also sashay a little bit to the artist in you. (laughs) Was that in a way, a natural act? 
Yes. Um, you know, since <laughs> I have to say that uh, my mom got mad at me because I, I did get into, you know, these the three, the th- top three schools even today, right? The ones you have to get tested into. So I got into Bronx Science and not Bronx. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not Bronx Science. Brooklyn Tech. The third one, right? It's like, it's like Bronx Science, Sty. Stuyvesant. Then- yes. Those are elite public schools in yeah, the state yeah. for those people who don't know. Yes, exactly. But all that to say, I knew at 12, 13, I was not I did not want to go down that path of math and science, um, which, you know, my two older sisters, like I said, they were 10 years older than me. So they had to study finance because they just my parents needed the help financially. I was the youngest. So I I know I had privilege and I know I had um, more latitude to do what I wanted to do and study what I wanted to do. But it was still a fight. You know, they want me to like, what is this thing, the arts that you want to study? At 12, 13, I knew I was creative. I knew I wanted to study the arts. I couldn't, I don't think I used that language, but I was like, I'm passionate about this. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I always, I was always concerned about, you know, injustices in the world. Again, as a 12, 13 year old, you don't know how to articulate that. And so I think my tool was through the arts clearly. And so I decided to go to Edward R. Morrow. I learned video, I learned photography, I learned fine arts, all creative writing, all kinds of things in a public school back when the arts actually mattered and was funded in public Mm, schools. mm. So it was through that, I think, where I really um, realized that, um, again, I I didn't have the language to articulate it, but that the reason why I was interested in the arts was because I wanted to help elevate and provide a platform for people's stories to be told. Um, and so from that, you know, like I said, I, you know, I studied photography in high school. Um, and then I, and, you know, I got into uh, NYU for photography and then film and television. And then I, I was a little bit, uh, what's the word, uh, jaded <laughs> through the program. I couldn't find people of like minds, very few people. They all wanted to, which is fine. They all wanted to be the next, you know, Scorsese or, or Quentin Tarantino or Spike Lee, who I admire so much. But I knew I wanted to study nonfiction um, and documentary film. And, and there was a very small community, George Stoney, who passed away many years ago. Um, but he was sort of the, the father of community media, like, you know, this idea of like producing something with the community, co-authorship, all of this public access television. He was really the father of that. So I was fortunate to meet him. And he just made some iconic films. Um, and, and he became my mentor. And um, I decided to stay at NYU and continue this trajectory of studying nonfiction film. Sam Pollard, who is a Spike Lee's editor, uh, he w- he's also a social justice-minded person. And I took a class with him and my spark came back. But uh, I still, you know, again, was involved with the labor organizing in Chinatown. And so right after I made a film, it's called Resilience. It was a thesis film, my thesis film, that eventually was shown at the Margaret Mead Film Festival about my mother, her activism, and my sister, and how our family, basically, it was a family story, right? It wasn't just something that I chose to get involved in. And um, despite that, I was sort of at a height of sorts with, with that right after college, but my heart was with the actual organizing. So I left the arts and film and that for a little while and did direct uh, organizing in Chinatown, uh, labor organizing for a while. Um, and But then started to realize that my path, my tool, my way of contributing to the movement was through the arts and through storytelling. Eventually uh, coming back around and getting my MFA and, and realizing that this is my path to, this is my social justice path. So you knew that you had to marry both of these Mm-hmm. endeavors i'm trying to think of what the, if that's exactly the right word as and passions right that they were mm-hmm. bigger than you mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean 
it's that's a really great way to to put that. And I, it took me a while because I was doing the labor organizing and then realizing, well, let's make some, you know, films about it. And so I did, you know, dabble in it, but not like a nuts in a serious way. I shouldn't say that. I was working with other immigrant workers and other immigrant youth. And we were actually, and I actually found a lot of joy in that, which is where I found the joy of teaching, I guess, in my early twenties, even though I wasn't really teaching full on yet, uh, working with immigrant youth, right? Undocumented, documented, some spoke English, some didn't, teaching them how to document their own conditions in their workplaces, in the community. And these were back in the day, the cameras that were like the huge, the VHS cam, you know, those were the ones that were available at the time and nineties are the ones that we had access to. And then they we received a grant from Manhattan Neighborhood Network, which was a public access station to um, teach these classes. I eventually worked there, but that's another story. And, you know, I, I got so much joy out of working with older, you know, intergenerational group of folks. And I was U.S. born, but I felt like I had more of a bond with these folks than I did with the people I went to school with at NYU who were Asian and looked like me, but were from a different class and really felt like aliens to me. And so through that, uh, the spark came back and I realized how much I enjoyed working with people to produce something, right? Like a co, truly a co-production. So I helped produce, but it was really helping provide tools and a platform for people to create their own media and tell their stories. So you never had any self-doubt about what it is you could do or not do. You just kind of and I use this term a lot with the women I've interviewed. You soldier on. You just did what came naturally. Yeah, I guess you're right. You know, I never thought about that. And people always ask me, was there ever a doubt for you? And um, and I said, the only doubt that came uh, was when I realized that this wasn't going to be the most financially stable career whatsoever um, in the arts in general. And even in, you know, our organizing, but you work for nonprofits and there's some st- stability there. Uh, but that was the only doubt. And of course, a lot of you probably know this. I mean, you know, there's a model minority myth of Asians, which is a whole nother thing, right? Of like how we're pit against other people of color and other immigrants. But anyway, the model minority is also such that you're smarter, quote unquote, and you go the path of a lucrative career. And the arts mm-hmm. was certainly not that. Mm-hmm. So I was the first one in my family, you know, not the first in my family to go to college or get an advanced degree, but I mean to really break that um, and to really try to take the risk of going the path that I, I went on. And it was really hard. My parents honestly had no idea what I did. And I, Chinese is like equivalent of like a third grader. Um, so when you're know, trying to communicate with them, they never got it. But until about five or six years ago, when my work with Chinatown Art Brigade, with the brigade that I helped co-found and, and some other work, it was elevated to, you know, it was in the Chinese papers and on the Chinese news. And one of her relatives in Hong Kong or China wrote her and was like, hey, I saw your daughter in the news in, in China because there's a, it was the broadcasting system, you know, and they farm out these clips to different parts of China and Hong Kong. Um, so it's kind of funny. My mom was like, oh my God, you know, you're so-and-so saw you in China on the news. And then she saw us and she saw me in papers. And that was when, and you know, I got emotional when she was like the first time when she was just like, oh, I'm really proud of you. Mm. Is that the first time you heard that from her? I think so. I have mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. Asian people, East Asian people are not very emotional mm-hmm. <laughs> or not very affectionate. And I say that not in a way, you know, it is what it is kind of. Right, right. I, I don't put any judgment on it because that's how I grew mm-hmm. up. There's like an expectation, isn't there, Betty, more than praise. You're expected to succeed and achieve. 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I waited till my mid, you know, this was many years ago, but my mid thirties until I had a show, it was, uh, and I had a show and then it was, she came to it and she saw like the stories were, uh, you know, it was about Sunset Park, Brooklyn and the gentrification and people's stories. And I had interviewed her, my dad, but all other people. So she saw herself in it uh, on the walls in this gallery. And then she saw the paper and then she heard about the TV story, the TV news segment. And then she said to me, you know, I'm proud of I'm, I'm really proud of you. And and I was just, I don't know. I, I don't think I told her this, but I got really emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I waited, I don't know how many years for that. So, yeah. so yeah. Mm-hmm. So you knew you had a mission. Um, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, uh, it's weird. It's that, I mean, I said not to sound all like weird and woo woo. Cause I'm not that that new agey person. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a voice inside me, I guess my whole life that, um, felt like I could not that I was, I can't explain it, it. It was this great injustice that was done to, you know, it started with very personal with my parents because I saw my mom and dad, you know, working long hours, like I said, and also not only the mental exhaustion and the, and the trauma that I, that me and my sisters face with having feeling like, these conditions stole time away from my parents, you know, with my parents, not only that, but the physical disability. So my mother really just in her fifties already, her body was like, um, deteriorated to someone who was like in their Mm seventies because of the repetitive stress of working as a seamstress. And my dad, he was a button operator. He worked in factories all throughout, you know, Chinatown, but he, you know, I realized that he is partially deaf because of the button operating that he was doing 15 hours a day near a button machine. And so I would have to shout around him, you know, when I'm little, I'm like, why do I have to shout around you? You know, and then realizing that later on and just really feeling really um, something in my gut that this, you know, this is not, you know, right. What, how is it that, you know, again, I'm like a young kid when I think about this, but I was like, how is it that a small 1% of people control and all this wealth and control the means of production? Of course, I didn't have that language when I was little. Right, right. But, and maybe there's the more um, socialist side of me coming out in terms of my activism. And I, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say that, you know, I mean, you know, we could live in a different world. Capitalism is not working. But anyway, at that time, it was like, why, why can't this be shared by all? Like there's this wealth and, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, but there were, I was like, there's other solutions. There's got to be other ways. And so I have to say that, you know, it was really through that personal experience. Um, and then when I was, got involved, I was obviously learning about other systems, other social governing systems around the world. And like, why is the U S the way it is and questioning that. So, so I guess it was, what was driving me honestly was my passion to just see a better world. Um, it sounds really corny, but to really, really a socially just world where we all have shelter. We all have access to a livable wage. I mean, just basic, right. Healthcare and all of this and realize that I did organizing on the ground for a couple of years and it was exhausting. And I was like, this is not for me. I have so much respect for activists and organizers, I mean, organizers specifically who do the, the boots on the ground, canvassing, door knocking, all of that mm-hmm, protesting. Mm-hmm. But that's me, not me. And I realized that the arts was my, I hate to say my calling. It was my way of of contributing to the social justice movement. And that that was, you know, many years ago when I realized that that was my, my path. Explain to me through your eyes, what it means to be a multimedia artist. I started out in mainly, like I said, film and some photography. Uh, But as of late in the last maybe seven, eight years, I have done a lot more, become a lot more um, 
uh, uh, um, multifaceted in the mediums that I dabble with. And so I say multimedia because um, I also do a lot of installation art. So meaning transforming spaces. So for instance, you know, I transformed a, a gallery space into like a, the show was called The Garment Worker. Um, and it was paying an homage to people like my mom and dad and other garment workers. And so it was also a piece that was shown at the Tribeca Interactive, but it was a sewing machine that when you touch it, literally when you operate the machine, and this is all stuff I learned in grad school, interactive media tools, um, that you uh, images would come up on a TV screen that was right above the sewing machine. So it was stories of garment workers, mainly ah, women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you would press the pedal, your fo- a foot pedal, or you turn the wheel, or you you slide the stitch control and on the side there, and different stories would come up. And I did this with my mom because I didn't, you know, I did, I helped my mom a little bit not in the garment factory. She would take work home when I was little because she had to finish the work. So I knew a little bit, but not obviously anything really substantive. So working with my mom, it felt good to kind of work with her and just creating that interactive experience. And so I transformed this space. And so that was one installation and I've done a number of other installations. And then the other piece that has been really multimedia um, based has been these outdoor evening projections. And so about six years ago, I co-founded with two other uh, Asian American artists, uh, Chinatown Art Brigade, and we work with tenants in Chinatown. They're called Cab Organizing Asian Communities, and they've been organizing in Chinatown since 9-11, as you probably know. But, you know, for audiences maybe outside of New York after 9-11, I was, you know, on the ground literally on that day. But also after that, what had happened was real estate was really cheap. Right. Not just in Tribeca, but Lower East Side. And that was a way for real estate developers who were receiving government aid, but to really buy blocks and blocks of land. And so 10, 15 years, 15 years later, you see all these condos. But those actually came as a result of post 9-11, a real estate, uh, I call them sort of warehousing, you know, efforts. But basically all that to say that all these garment factories got turned into office spaces and galleries and the mom and pop places were sort of like uh, pushed out. And so a lot of people have been facing eviction, right? Because their apartments are very valuable in Chinatown, right? And if the landlord can get them out, they can easily flip it and and turn it into a condo or co-op or some actually most likely condo or just raise the whole building, right? Like bulldoze it and then build up. And so Chinatown Art Brigade, we received uh, quite a bit of... uh, we were were shocked that there was support and out in the in the nonprofit foundation world. So we were pleased that we were able to work with these tenants and work with them through storytelling and um, art workshops to help them find their tool to tell their own stories. So through walks throughout Chinatown, they would identify places of importance, places where there were renters striking, right, forming unions, all this kind of thing. So that culminated into these outdoor, these beautiful outdoor projections at night um, on walls in Chinatown. And we heard so many stories from people, really moving testimonies of people who like, you know, they were like, we we felt seen. We never saw anything like this, our own stories of resilience or resistance. And it was a way to celebrate our own stories, but also to get other people involved and to let the gentrifiers know that they could be allies. They don't have to just be coming in and extracting, but they could actually be allies. And the ones that are not, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting for people to stay in their homes. Are you winning? Oh, you know, I think uh, with COVID, it's hard to say, right? There's a real fear that people are going to really be on the streets, like not just in Chinatown, but throughout New York City, probably throughout the the, the country. But I know, but I know about New York City. But I would say that throughout this period of time, incremental wins, right? So the last couple of years, they've been 
the rent guidelines board, right? That's regulated by the city. They've been able to uh, stop increases of rent in rent stabilized apartments. But what the landlords are doing, they these big landlords and slumlords, I call them, they know how to work the system, right? And so they know how to make conditions really bad to kick people out. And so literally the conditions that I could tell you that we hear from tenants through this organization and what we've projected onto these walls. It's just like letting, literally, literally letting staircases cave, letting, you know, vermin and all, you know, anyway, all kinds of rodents run free and not take care of anything as a way to kick these folks out. So, I mean, it's gotten to the point where you have people who are literally paying five to $700 before the pandemic for a bed within a room where you're sharing the room with maybe a couple yeah. other people. Yeah. And it used to be that you could, back in the day, you could maybe have, you maybe have one roommate, right? And so when people say, oh, well, what do you mean it's not affordable? People are still living there. This is still a Chinatown. What do you mean? It's growing. And people say, oh, literally, literally it's shrinking. And I remind people that it's the transnational finance capital from China and Taiwan and other, not just you know, in Europe too, but talking about Chinatowns, it's the overseas capital that is taking over. So they want the more middle upper class Chinese. That's yeah, people that look like me, but not of the same class background and certainly not the same background as these tenants who are barely struggling to get by. They want a different class of people in Chinatown. And that's really the fight, right? Is like that is fighting that gentrification of people that look like us. And then there's the on the ground, there's galleries that are opening of people who don't look like us, right? But who's really controlling the larger pieces? It's the government allowing this finance capital to come and changing laws so they can build up. But the last thing I want to say is that it's very complicated because with, with when we say wins, you know, you see some wins, there's rent guidelines that get rolled back, right? Rent is not increased, but then something else would happen, right? So it's it's very unwieldy, you know, situation. And, you know, when, when people say, oh, what do you mean? You know, Chinatown's still thriving. You know, I say that, you know, our businesses, especially with COVID, have closed down. What replaces them? Yes, it's an Asian business, but it's actually a corporate chain from China or from Taiwan or one of these like Korean-owned bakeries. It's uh, these French bakeries. I don't know uh, French baguette, if you've seen them. Anyway, a lot of these kind of fancy, very expensive bakeries that are French style, but they're actually Korean. So the ones that are coming in are actually not mom and pop places. The corporations are coming in. So there's that piece of it. And people are paying very, they're paying a lot to be able to stay in Chinatown and have a bed, to basically a bed to sleep on because it's a community. It's it's where they thrive. It's the language, it's the food, it's all of that, right? So landlords know they have they have them by the, you know, mm-hmm. right. cojones, right. I guess. <laughs> right. So I'm very passionate about this issue around gentrification as it relates to what we're seeing now with COVID and the increased hate crimes uh, because it's terrible what we're seeing, but it's also tied into these other systems that are um, not as visible perhaps. And I mean that capitalism and racism, right? I mean, the attacks, right, are not just, we know they just didn't start yesterday. This economic violence against Asians and in general in this country, right, against people of color, didn't start during COVID, right? And so what we're seeing is a culmination of sorts. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, it begs the question, Betty, why haven't you run for office? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's a a ridiculous question on my part. (laughs) Uh, it's hilarious. Um, you know, it's funny. People have asked me at times, they're like, you should go into politics or become a lawyer. I'm like, ah, I would rather the other way from, you know what it is? I feel that I have so much respect for people who are social justice warriors, who are amazing people who go into law and go into politics. But I feel like in within this system, you get 
you get a little beaten down. I mean, I'm already beaten down, all of, you know, all of us, especially right now. I mean, with look at what the four years we had, of course, and COVID. But um, I think it would really take my, the fire out of me, if that makes any sense. I still have a fire in my belly. <laughs> and I feel like politics would just drain the uh, light. I totally out get of that. Me. And <laughs> soul sucking. You do what works for you while it's working for other people. <laughs> I just think what's so fascinating about this, not that an artist can't be political, of course they can, but it's just an interesting dynamic that you have managed to marry your creative ability with your other passions. Mm, yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I, and the, I'm laughing because people have mentioned this to me, like, you should, you should think about running for off, like local office. And I think that, you know, my, my way is to supporting the organizing on the ground. As we know, you know, as you probably can hear from my voice already, I'm very cynical of electoral politics, even the left of the left, uh, electoral politics can get really complicated and you're confined into a system, a capitalist system already. There's only so much you can do. Like even AOC, right? Who, you know, she still has to make compromises, right? She's still who she is in office within this structural uh, system of, mm-hmm. of that's mm-hmm. built on what it's built on. So there's only so much you can do. But I, I do say that I have hope in terms of just us as a populace, as, you know, working people, uh, the masses like pushing for that change of pushing the politicians and and really and building that pressure. And I really hope that that happens, like with the George Floyd um, bill, you know, the hate crimes bill was passed. And there was that one Josh Hawley, who the, uh, I'm not a whole <laughs> Republican yeah. who wrote it against it. But it is complicated because even that hate crimes legislation that was passed increases policing in the Chinatowns and in communities. Right. They're increasing the anti-Asian hate task force here locally with the NYPD. And it's complicated because, in my opinion, that is not going to solve anything. It's only going to create more tensions between people of color, particularly Latino and African-Americans in the Chinatown and the Asian community. There's already so much anti-Blackness that it's going to increase that and not bring our communities together. We have much more in common than we have differences. Mm. And so that restorative peace is deeply rooted in like obviously diverting funds away from more policing and toward our communities toward housing and school mm-hmm. and jobs mm-hmm. and education all the stuff that we know that is going to make conditions better for everyone versus more policing and militarization i mean i went to chinatown the other day manhattan and i couldn't believe the amount of cops i saw and then plainclothes cops an asian right and then i was like this is not making me feel safer this is not making me feel safer i'm sorry because there have been attacks on chinese by cops as well right so you know, the, I think the racial reckoning and the uprisings that we saw last summer and to see our Chinatowns being so militarized. And I get that older Asian people love that. They feel safer. I I understand that. But that is not the solution. In my mind, that is absolutely not the solution because we have much more in common as working people, as people of color, than we have differences. And there are ways that we have to do that reckoning with each other. But you brought the coronavirus. <laughs> you know, That's right. No, you're flu. absolutely right. You know what? And there should be accountability by those individuals who, I mean, you know, I I don't know if you saw that viral video, I hate saying that word, by the Chinese grandma who actually spoke the dialect that my grandma spoke. And I was so tickled. 75 year old out in San Francisco, this white man uh, attacked her, full on attacked her. And she took a piece of plywood 
And she started beating him with, <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't <laughs> yeah. be laughing at this, but he was a young, I mean, he, he mm. was fine. So the, what we saw in the news was him being taken away in a stretcher, a little bit bloody and her saying in toy Chinese in a certain dialect that I grew up listening to. She was like, I want more of him. I want more of him. And the reporters <laughs> and the cops holding her back. And I just was like, wow, you know, and, and that video went all over the place and raised $1 million just for her medical bills. And she donated that $1 million back to stop anti-Asian hate. Mm. All to, to the efforts. And I just thought, wow, we, we need more upstanding folks like, like her, right? All that to just say that um, they absolutely should be held accountable, folks who are doing this. Honestly, to tell you, it's, it's, it's so dumb. It's like, really? You think I have corona? I mean, like, it's just, I don't know. I th- it's just so ridiculous. It's not that you have it. You caused it. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> that it caused right? it. That's yeah. right. And it's just so ridiculous. I almost feel like, is this just an excuse? Everyone's cooped up. Anyway, I have my own theory. I'm like, uh, do you just need an excuse to like, you know, beat on older, el- you know, elders? And it's just terrible. I'm, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm afraid for my parents. You know, I'm not going to lie. I, I worry about them and I check in on them. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, you're right. It's so ridiculous. I mean, Trump calling it the China flu and oh my God, the whatever he called it. I mean, I, I don't want to say, I don't like to yeah, say his name anymore. Let's not give him any, uh, any platform yes. at this point, yes. please. <laughs> God knows. Yes, please. Yes. I'm curious, Betty, are you able to lose yourself in your art? Mm, I love this question. Um, Yes. Um, it literally keeps me up at night. And and I guess when something keeps you up at night, it means you're full on 150% in. Or it can make or you can be neurotic about it also. Yeah, you know, I have OCD tendencies that I <laughs> I love my mother, but um I've I've inherited that from her. So it might be obsessive compulsion or it might be a combo of sorts. But if I'm working on a video, like and so like I said when you were asking about the multimedia piece, so projections and, you know, making things uh, interactive like with sensors and buttons, but also that has given me the freedom to learn or the opportunity and the permission to learn new tools. So I like to say I'm a lifelong student. I teach, you know, like I teach, of course, but I also love learning new tools and also applying those new tools to new venues and to new art pieces that I'm creating. And so multimedia is something I, I fully embrace. And the fact that these tools now, especially these mobile tools, new media tools, which I forgot to mention, are so accessible now, right? Like to the point where my mom now knows how to use a QR code because for God's sakes, during Corona, you know, when you are walking around, there's QR codes everywhere. I mean, Asian people have been using the QR codes forever, but if you wanted to order something, let's say, you know, they don't want you to touch anything. So you put your phone up on a QR code. So there's that piece of it. And then there's the mobile devices where, you know, now you can bring stories to life through augmented reality, right? It's the where you put the phone on something and then you press the button and it does it's scary because it's using facial recognition software Mm. which is really its own little talk about surveillance but then it triggers it so it recognizes the image and then a story comes up or an audio piece comes up so I'm really playing around with all these tools and so what keeps me up is I get immersed in these tools and the endless possibilities because I love the fact you know right now I'm creating something that's um it's a a GPS triggered audio walks, meaning that GPS on your phone unlocks where you are, right? And where you're going, again, surveillance. I'm totally understanding that's like a tracking tool, which is awful. 
but I'm trying to use it for good. So there's these tools out there where you turn on your phone and, and as you follow a map and you're walking, the different stories will come up, people's stories. So I'm creating an audio walk now in the neighborhood I grew up in. So as you walk with your map, um, you hear various stories of people, you know, where they are facing like I said, gentrification really, you know, in Sunset Park in this area, in this neighborhood that I grew up in, but you hear different stories. So you'll hear uh, Chinese with an overlay of English, of course, it's translated or Spanish mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you hear these stories. So I'm building out this platform. It's, it's it's a free tool, actually. It's called Echoes, if anyone wants to look it up. It's a free tool. I always encourage people to use these free tools and you create your own experience, right, for others. And so I've been really, really trying to figure out more ways to engage people through these mobile uh, phones. And I recognize it limits your audience. So I always still like to do the face-to-face and then I like to to figure out how to, to be present with people. But especially during this time of COVID, I've been trying to figure out how do I communicate with my audience or just communicate through... Um, tools that can be used while you're social distance. So I've been working a lot with web-based platforms and obviously uh, phone-based platforms as a way to get my work out there. I've been doing a lot of online exhibitions, you know, because of Corona, a lot of, a lot of in-person exhibitions became online. Um, the few that were in person, they were so weird. I had a show in Queens Museum and one in, in Tribeca in a gallery and the installation was all done remotely. It was just bizarre, even though we're all in New York, but mm. You know, back in September, nobody wanted to even get near each other. So I'm really looking forward to just getting right back into the face-to-face because I that's where I thrive is often by people, their energy. Um, and, you know, I'm very much a person who feels people's energy in person. So the teaching online, the everything online has been tough to be honest. Well, not for nothing. We feel your energy. That's for damn sure. <laughs> you can certainly power a city, Betty. <laughs> It's really been a pleasure to get to know you. I'm more than impressed. I think there's a little bit of me that's overwhelmed. Boy, you are (laughs) an amazing broad. Thank you. I appreciate that. That really means a lot. Well, it really comes from the heart. I feel like a slug next to you. Um, No. (laughs) I've read your bio and I've looked at your site and who you are. And I'm like, whoa, It's like she wants to interview me. Okay. Well, (laughs) it's like little greater, Betty. Come on. And. There's always time for a part two. Anything that you are doing that you want to share with us, we'd love to hear about it. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And, you know, I am a fan of what I've heard on your podcast. And obviously you done so much with your career as a journalist. And I'm just very humbled and um, appreciative that you reached out for this opportunity. Well, it was a no-brainer for me. And not for nothing, it's just so fabulous to meet women like you. And I could be doing this till I'm 180 and not even make a dent. What a labor of love. So Betty, you, you keep us in your loop. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your life with us. Thank you so much. This has been very therapeutic and it feels like a therapy <laughs> in a good way, in a very good way. And I, I didn't t- have to pay anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I take it in a good way. Thank you again. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. <laughs>